Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Many families traveling to the sun-drenched ocean town of Long Beach, California in the summer of 1977 would take a day trip and visit the New Pike Amusement Park. Picture Coney Island on the West Coast. With its vintage rides, shows, games, and attractions, and located on the beautiful breeze-swept beach, New Pike was a favorite amongst locals, as much as it was with out-of-town tourists. But in the summer of 1977, amongst all of the sun and fun, Not everything was what it appeared to be, even with all of the intentional illusions and deceptions. Imagine you walk off of the Long Beach boardwalk and into an amusement parlor. The operator instructs you to carefully step down into the ride car. The lighting is so dim that seeing what is around you, much less where you are stepping, is challenging. You take a seat and the attendant slides the arm bar down over your lap with an audible click. The car lurches forward and into the brightly colored, black-lit door, welcoming you into New Park's House of Horrors. So, sit back, buckle up, and maybe dim the lights just a bit, as we take you on a ride through this week's episode of The Missing Chapter. You're listening to The Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of The Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Hornder here with uh, Phil Schaff. We have an amazing pot of Utica coffee uh, brewing in the back of the room, dark chocolate raspberry truffle is the choice for today. And it sounds more like a dessert than a coffee, but it's fantastic. And you mentioned earlier, Phil, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said whatever they put in the description and the title and the flavor, you can taste each one of those elements specifically in the coffee. You taste the chocolate. There's definitely a hint of raspberry and even the truffle. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a discernible truffle taste there. It's almost as if I'm eating a dark chocolate raspberry truffle. Yeah, it's really, but good. it's coffee. It's coffee, and uh, and we're enjoying it like we usually do. And we're we're excited to bring uh, today's episode and introduce something new that we've been working on for you as well. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things about uh, the Missing Chapter podcast is we we always like to reassess where we are. We'd like to um, maybe be our own worst critic and, and kind of analyze. Uh, how the episodes are going and, and things that our listeners would want to hear, as well as um, items in history that we're passionate about. And I think it's the the best podcasts are the ones where the um, the listeners can tell the the passion through the microphone, the passion through the speaker. So we, we're very, very passionate about history. I hope you you see that and you hear that um, in our voices as we, as we describe these stories. But one thing I really want to emphasize is that not all elements of history are able to be produced in a 30 to 45 minute podcast. And I think some of the the coolest pieces of history are just those, did you know, moments, you know, the, the, the times where you've come into, into class and 
not even mentioning it to me, but our students say, hey, guys, did you know we're talking about this topic, but did you know this? And it's just a short little snippet. So we're taking that element and putting it into the missing chapter. So what we're going to add to this um, this podcast is instead of giving you full episodes, we're going to throw some, some bonus uh, features at you. We're going to throw what we'd like to call the missing chapter shorts. Uh, so we're, we're just little short elements, maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes, not a full episode, but just to give you a, um, a little did you know story to kind of change things up and keep you guessing from, from here on out. No, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be fun for us and I think it's going to be fun for our listeners. And again, maybe maybe they don't have 30 minutes to sit down and listen to a, a, a full duration of a podcast that we prep for them. So, you know, I think it'll fit better into their schedules as well. I agree. I'm looking at today's episode and and we've done a couple of episodes now as we get deeper and deeper into season one. And I, I think back and is there one word that kind of captures the theme of some of the episodes or as you wrap up your research for an episode, is there one word that kind of captures what that was about? And I think the word I'm thinking of for the one that you're going to hear about today is bizarre, bizarre and overly strange. And at some point, I also had to th- convince myself that this actually happened. I think to myself, this is really in 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 just a realm of my mind. I can't even fathom that these practices that you're about to hear about and the, that these events actually uh, happen. So I think keep in the back of your mind the word bizarre. So hopefully that's piqued your interest. I mentioned in the intro, the year is 1977. We're in Long Beach, California. It actually starts with a camera crew, a camera crew working on location for an episode of the hit television show, The Six Million Dollar Man, starring Lee Majors, which I know is personally, I was born in 1978. This was a little bit before my time, but I'm certainly familiar with the name Lee Majors. And I know The Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, I've heard of it before. Right. It ran for five seasons between 1974 and 1978. And they, they actually were kind of famous in and around California because even though they filmed at ABC Studios, they did a lot of their filming in and around the studios, on locations. And this particular episode was entitled Carnival of Spies. And okay. it was part of their season four. And they were doing work that day on New Pike Amusement Park, all right, which was located on Long Beach. In amongst all of these scenes being actually shot, they're doing some prep work uh, in one of the amusement park fun houses, preparing for a scene. And the art director is trying to stage what they described as an emaciated looking mannequin. An (laughs) emaciated looking mannequin, it was spray painted with glow in the dark orange, hanging from a noose. What? Kind of set back in to one of the parts of the ride. It looks like it'd been there, it had collected... Um, uh, some cobwebs and some dust, and they were moving it uh, to better equip for the next shot, the next frame. And they think it's made out of paper mache when they feel it. Okay. Okay. The art director describes moving it, feels like it's paper mache. Um, Inadvertently, something very bad happens if you're an art director and you're filming on scene. Probably one of the last things you want to do is harm anything. Right, that, that would make there. sense. Yeah. Well, they do more than just harm the, this paper mache emaciated mannequin. This art director inadvertently knocks off one of the arms. Okay. Okay. So they've damaged this piece of this um, of this funhouse of this amusement ride. Yeah. But much to this art director's surprise and really horror is that it 
turns out not to be a mannequin at all, Phil, and actually a real human being. <laughs> Wait yes. a second. A real human being. I just described spray painted, <laughs> shoved in the back corner of this amusement ride, um, hanging from a noose. It's a real person. All right, wait a second. So as you're describing this, and you're really painting a really vivid portrait here, which I can visualize, and I'm sure the listeners can too. And then you had a you had a little bit of concern in your voice about a mannequin. Mm-hmm. And I, at, at first, I almost interjected and questioned, like, hey, what's the big deal? It's just a mannequin. I see the big deal now. Right. And they talked about the, the art director going from, we're going to have to repay repay the, the amusement park for the damage that we've done to. Yep. We're going to have to call authorities and and get to the bottom of who this is and how it got here. But the arm, it became very apparent. The arm was real human. There was there was bone uh, remnants surrounded by human tissue. Um, the corpse certainly had the appearance appearance of being made out of plastic or wax um, or paper mache. Um, but certainly no one questioned whether or not it had been a real human being. Well, that was my question. Like at, at some point, someone must have known. I mean... Or, you would or think. they they, dis, they disguised it and spray painted it enough where you really couldn't tell. Right, and and the park um, was just as surprised as the art director. I mean, the, the, obviously the attention goes back to the people who had purchased this and and had it as part of their ride. You know, did you know anything about this? Like where you got it from? And you know, people were shocked. I mean, people were shocked on a number of different levels. So obviously the the, the production for the show comes to a screeching halt. Police are notified as well as as uh, fire department. A little piece of comedy thrown in here: the police and the fire department that come on the scene, and this is a little bit strange too, <laughs> decide that they're going to play a prank on the paramedics. What? And they call the paramedics and describe the scene at the beach that they had someone suffering. Get this from severe dehydration. And that's oh all gosh. they tell the paramedics. So the paramedics rush to the scene. They 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 realize that the severe dehydration is actually a body that is essentially mummified and oh. has been for an extended period of time. Everyone has a good laugh. Everyone has a good laugh. So you go from realizing we have a crime scene to everyone having a good laugh and then saying, OK, let's get back to the task at hand, which is to figure out who this person is, identify them, how they got here and how they died. So it was 1977. And, and with the mystery surrounding the body, investigators are still nearly a decade removed, you know, from having the luxury of DNA testing to help them in, the, in, in their identification of this mystery person. The body, like I said, had, had essentially been mummified in a completely strange scenario. Um, the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, in conjunction with the Los Angeles County Police Department, begins their inve- investigation with an autopsy. Okay. All right. And when the coroner discovers, or what the coroner discovers, is really something out of the TV show, is really something out of Hollywood. It just it it sounds more like a staged set of circumstances. Um, they they what they're finding really sheds light on on some of the mystery right away. A turn of the century bullet is found lodged in the man's chest. Oh my god! Wait, what? Right, one bullet, turn of the century. And obviously, the coroner determines that's the cause of the death. Okay. Right? There's only one bullet. Oddly, they they continue their their um, investigation. They find a corroded 1924 penny in the person's mouth, and several used ticket stubs to the Museum of Crime Wax Museum. 
all right, which by this time had closed down. It was actually a, a wax museum years ago, all right, which isn't even around anymore. Okay. The petrified body stood about 5'3 and was only about 50 pounds. Historians in the LA area, amazingly, were able to take these clues and start to apply an identity and profile to the mystery corpse. And based on what they were finding, all right, through local uh, universities and schools, they actually were able to come up with a name. It fit the oh description of some stories that they had heard and read about in these books. And the name was Elmer McCurdy. McCurdy's life and eventual demise were well documented, primarily because of all of his run-ins with the law in the early 1900s. So there were a lot of records, you know, with, through court systems and law enforcement of who this this uh, person was. Elmer McCurdy was born on New Year's Day in 1880. He grew up as an orphan and sadly spent a lot of his, uh, the majority of his life alone, which will play a key element into this story and a big piece of the puzzle that helps explain how after a 60 year long journey, his body ends up in an amusement park of all places in Long Beach. His life is certainly one of struggle and, and poor breaks. And like I said, McCurdy had been an orphan as a child uh, by all accounts, he'd never met his parents. Whether that meant that they were estranged from him or, or dead, we're not sure, but he never knew who his parents were. With the economic downturn ushered in in 1900, McCurdy uh, headed westward from wherever he was, possibly on the East Coast. But like many people in 1900 who were desperate for money, desperate for jobs, um, the West offered some some opportunities if you are willing to work hard. Throughout McCurdy's life, he grappled with holding down a job, however, uh, took on a lot of different odd jobs to survive, but in large part, he couldn't stay with one position because of chronic alcoholism. McCurdy had served in the U.S. Army for four years before heading back to the Great Plains, and he spent a portion of his life working in lead mines which led to bouts with tuberculosis. So by, you know, not only was he struggling financially alone in much of his life, but now he had health issues as well. At some point, McCurdy resorts to a life of crime and surrounds himself with a group of fellow crooks and thieves. Being a thief and a robber is bad enough, but being a poor thief and poor at your trade is even worse. And it would seem Elmer McCurdy was terrible at the art of burglary. Oh my! All right, I have so many questions. Yeah. This is unbelievable. I told you the word bizarre, Phil. <laughs> bizarre, and I is... didn't waste any time. <laughs> no, not at all. So, I, first of all, I just want to say it is complete irony. Maybe the fact that uh, just a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. we were talking about a Glinda or Michael who was used in Operation Mincemeat, who was uh, you know homeless, didn't have any next of kin, and here we are, almost a, a very similar story. In a in a 1970s uh, twist here, this is right. this is incredible. And you go from having what everyone thought was a paper mache mannequin in a California amusement park, all of a sudden being at one point a real life human being. And this book opens up on what they'd experienced as a child, what struggles they endured, middle aged, and. It just seems very surreal that this could have happened. Totally. I, I just I keep getting this visual of the puzzle already being made, but then having to take the puzzle apart just to put it back again, put it back together again to understand how the puzzle came to be in, in, in itself. So I, 
I just I keep thinking to myself, we have this this guy. He's already there. We think he's American. Right. Then we have to take the pieces apart and then put it back together again to really see his true identity. Right. This is this is incredible. And Phil, I love that metaphor because as I as I developed this story, I thought to myself, it was almost like you're working backwards. Right. Right. So we said he was terrible at the art of burglary. Here, here's some examples. How do we know this? Well, there's some great documented accounts of Elmer's lack of skills, okay, coupled with his poor luck. For instance, McCurdy tried to rob a train near Lenape, Oklahoma. And unfortunately him, for him, the explosives that he'd used to open the train safe ended up melting all of the silver coins inside that he was planning on stealing. Subsequently, his later lawbreaking days didn't go much better. He attempted to rob a bank in Kansas that same year, but repeated his earlier mistake, melting all of the valuable contents inside the vault. Strike two for Elmer. Another failed account described McCurdy's success in blowing up an entire bank in Kansas. <laughs> an entire bank, that is, with the exception of the safe, which remained standing, unscathed, unharmed. <laughs> Finally, in 1911, McCurdy and some of his accomplices, accomplices turned their attention to another train. They had their sights on a set on a train rumored to be carrying payments made by Native American tribes in Oklahoma uh, to the federal government. And the sum that they that they were under the impression that they would be coming across, $400,000. So there's a lot wow. riding on this train and there's a lot riding on this attempted burglary. In this case, however, McCurdy and his crew confused the arrival and the departure times of the trains at the station and instead end up hijacking a passenger train. It's the wrong train altogether. And this proves to be a fatal mistake for Elmer McCurdy. The train safe was empty. He was able to scrounge together $46 from the passengers on board, as well as a few personal items and two jugs of whiskey. He's disappointed, he's frustrated, and he escapes into the surrounding hills. The train informs authorities of the robbery at the next depot, and they immediately set out to find McCurdy, who by now had taken refuge in a barn near the Oklahoma-Kansas border. By nightfall of that same day, a $2,000 bounty had been placed on McCurdy's head. All right, so he's a wanted man. The following morning is October 7th, 1911. Three sheriffs and a team of bloodhounds had caught up with Elmer McCurdy. All right, who's still in the bar, who's intoxicated and refusing to turn himself in. After an hour-long shootout, McCurdy is found dead from a single shot in the chest, which mm -hmm. makes sense based right. on the story yep. and what the coroner in California found, bringing really a sad ending to a sad life. But the beginning of the journey his body would take, that's the central premise behind this episode. I... I know you listeners. So our can't. story's just starting. <laughs> I know you listeners can't see us right now. I have not stopped shaking my head since the the start of the story. I, I'm in disbelief right now. Uh, you know, you mentioned Hollywood at the beginning and how this story really plays off as a Hollywood movie, and it does. But my question is, I mean, he's so bad at being a burglar. Would this movie be an action thriller or a comedy? Right, maybe both. And I think to myself, we're 15 minutes in. <laughs> And I hope everyone's able to follow this because from the amusement park arm coming off of the mannequin to their realization that it's a real human being to this identification of Elmer McCurdy and then his story, like you said, of being a, a really bad burglar. Um, 
you know, where could we go from here? Exactly. Well, let's keep going. Elmer had no family, he had no friends. Therefore, he had no one to give him a proper burial after his death. So Elmer McCurdy's body is passed along to a local funeral director by the name of Joseph L. Johnson. Johnson proceeds to preserve the body using a large amount of embalming fluid laced with arsenic, which effectively mummifies Elmer. Wow. And with no family and friends, that also meant that unfortunately for Johnson, there was no one to pay for his time and his expenses. So as was customary, and this was something new that I'd learned, as was customary, there was a practice that dated all the way back to the Civil War where enterprising embalmers would put any unclaimed body on display in their store window. And there were two purposes for this. Yeah, I know. Again, I go back to the fact that in American history, bodies that were embalmed are being put on display, you know, in storefronts. There were two purposes for this. Not only would it help identify who that person might have been, but it also helped advertise for the services of the the funeral directors. People, you know, hey, look at our work. Johnson was especially impressed with his work on McCurdy and wanted to be compensated for it. So Elmer is put upright in his store and he actually starts to be to charge curious passerbys money to see with him, to pose with him and to touch him. So come on in. You know, if you'd like to pose with um, this embalmed individual, simply hand over a few coins and, and he'll let you do that. The payment, which would be a simple coin or two, would be made by placing it in Elmer McCurdy's mouth. Hence oh my the gosh. reason. And there is the penny. Right. And this is where Elmer McCurdy stood for several years. In one bizarre account that I just have to throw in here, Johnson reportedly placed roller skates on the body and allowed his children to chase smaller children in the neighborhood around in kind of this like morbid, almost perverse (laughs) trick, if you can picture that. So, and you know, I kept going back to complete disregard for the fact that this was at one point a living, breathing human being. I mean, we almost forget that. yeah, I I don't I don't know what to say. Very <laughs> this is like my only reaction is to laugh. I yeah. I can't believe this is this is a reality. So it was nearly five years later. A pair of men show up at Johnson's office, and these two individuals are claiming to be Elmer's long lost brothers, and they're infuriated to see how Elmer's body is being treated. They demand that he's taken down so that he could you know pr- be provided with a proper burial. But at this point, Johnson has been really hesitant to sell his oddity. Because it was so lucrative to his establishment. Wow. It actually made him money well beyond what it had cost to embalm him. But he's persuaded by these particular men because they're claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's brothers. So the next day, McCurdy's removed from Johnson's parlor and taken on the next leg of his journey. Two weeks later, McCurdy appears at a carnival in West Texas as an attraction dubbed the Bandit Who Wouldn't Give Up leading most historians to make an assumption that the men who had had obtained McCurdy's body from Joseph Johnson were actually famed traveling carnival owners by the names of Charles and James Patterson. And over the next several decades, Elmer McCurdy's body would make the rounds as a part of the carnival and sideshow circuit, most notably the great Patterson carnival shows. Next to the likes of the bearded lady, the strong man, alligator girl, the torture king. 
Every person in every group that possessed him was using him for the same purpose, to profit from him. And stops for him along the way would include an amusement park near Mount Rushmore, the Hollywood Wax Museum, and several haunted houses. McCurdy became part of the Traveling Museum of Crime in 1922 and later was purchased by the sideshow that accompanied the 1928 Trans-American Foot Race. And what's interesting to note here is that although there is a certain kind of morbid injustice going on here, which is obvious, right? you can't help but marvel at the legend that was building around Elmer McCurdy and the persona that his body was taking on. And he essentially was taking on in death. He'd never been able to achieve this in life. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like He, he almost made more money right. post-mortem than he was in his actual life. He's making money for people. You're right, after death, that he never could make for himself in life. That's incredible. Wherever he went, he was being billed as an outlaw, a cowboy, a train robber. And it wasn't just the body that people traveled to and paid money to see. It was the image, the facade that was being constructed around his identity. And the hardened, preserved body of this failed robber, who'd never successfully blown up a safe in his life, by the beginning of the 1960s, had found himself on display next to an exhibit of the famed Billy the Kid. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, The world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. So by the late 1960s, two things were really happening. First, every time the body of Elmer McCurdy passed between owners, it was becoming more and more damaged. And second, the days of the traveling carnival and the sideshow's popularity was beginning to wane. More of the established destination amusement parks, which were beginning to pop up around the country, were beginning to become more and more popular. In one, McCurdy's body was rigged to actually twitch and twerk, almost in a haunted house as cars rode by, uh, and he was dubbed the thousand-year-old man. By 1972, McCurdy had found his way to New Pike Amusement Park. Uh, in Long Beach, where we know he was painted with several coats of glow-in-the-dark paint. He was suspended from the ceiling by a noose, and he was dubbed by most people who at least worked there the Hanged Man, an appropriate final stop kind of for a bank-robbing bandit. But now, lying on the examiner's table in the L.A. County Coroner's Office, the abused body of Elmer McCurdy, in a way, was finally at rest. And the tuberculosis in his lungs, the documented scar on his wrist, helped officials properly identify McCurdy. After 60 years, he was himself again. No more aliases, no more carnival sideshow gimmick names. He was Elmer McCurdy. He was sent back, his body was, to Guthrie, Oklahoma, where he'd been killed for a proper burial. Several hundred townspeople of Guthrie dressed in time-appropriate garb and played the role of mourners at the funeral all right, that he had never had originally upon his death. His grave was reportedly covered with over six feet of concrete to prevent grave robbers from exhuming his body ever again for any future desecration. And Elmer McCurdy was finally able to rest, buried appropriately next to actual Wild West outlaw Bill Doolin, 
whose body had once been on exhibit next to McCurdy. <laughs> That's incredible. And thus ends one of the crazier tales I think we've spun on, on the missing chapter. Well, it, it's hard to wrap my mind around with, with all of the ironies and the, the coincidences, but it, it's a sad story in, yeah. in a sense, obviously, because of his, his life on Earth. But it's, it's odd that his legacy is not based on what he was doing and, and how he performed his life in general while he was living, but actually his death. Oh, absolutely. And, and you think, I mean, it was all by chance that any of this was exposed and found out about this entire story would never have come to, to light if they had never knocked the arm off in the amusement house. So there's a possibility that this could have gone on forever. Why not? I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. And maybe, he, or maybe they would have, you know, disposed of it because it was too old and they, right. they would never have found out that it was a, a living human uh, being at one point. But um, yeah, it's, I, I enjoyed researching this and, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it because it is, it, it is a fascinating story to say the least. I mean, I enjoyed it. I know yeah. that um, to have, to have more success post-mortem than right. you do uh, while you're living is, is pretty mm-hmm. incredible. The stories, I mean, fascinating mm-hmm. to say the least. So what do you have for us next week, Phil? Well, we got a couple of, um, a couple of interesting topics coming up here. So uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we do have a guest speaker coming on, um, which I think is going to be a, a little change of pace for the, the missing chapter mm-hmm. uh, because it's going to be very music oriented, which I think is, uh, is going to be an exciting experience. Uh, we also have uh, the next topic that I'm, I'm referencing. I'm, I'm super excited about. Uh, we're going back to a time in, in World War II, um, referencing Hitler and, and actually getting into one of the most unknown stories I've never even come across. Um, especially in such a, a highly recognized time period as World War II. And of course, the highly recognizable figure of, of Adolf Hitler. Um, and one of the issues that, that takes place in his, his realm of being chancellor uh, are the amount of attempts on his life, which I, I don't think too many people are aware of. At least it doesn't come up uh, as much in the history textbooks. And we're going to talk about a specific assassin that was just short of taking out uh, Hitler before he commits this, that horrible genocide. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>